And good morning, everybody. According to a book written called No Ordinary Time, the writer Goodwin talks about the first peacetime draft. It was on October 29, 1940. The Secretary of War was blindfolded, walked up to an enormous fishbowl, was going to pull out a number, and that number represented a group of men that are going to be called to enter into the, the war theater. He pulled out the first number. It was 158. Goodwin goes on to write about this moment and said, No sooner had the president spoken than a woman's scream was heard. Seated right in the middle of a crowded auditorium, Mildred Bell gasped her 20-year-old son Harry, who was supposed to be married the following week, held number 158. She knew his future was linked to the countries in a way that they'd not seen before. And his citizenship from that point on meant something beyond what he had ever known. In a similar way, God draws the number of all those whom he saves. We're called to be salt and light. We're called to be ambassadors and priests. We're enlisted to display righteousness in a wicked world to help feed the weak and the hungry, and to live in a way not consistent with those around us. And when we're saved, God calls us to a wholly different kingdom. And in a moment, in an instant, we become aliens and foreigners, exiles in the land we live, and citizens and ambassadors for a new kingdom as we stand on the, the brink of an election week. I'm reminded that I'm called to primarily be a warrior for a heavenly kingdom, not of this world. Paul says it in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want to talk about this morning is how do I live as a citizen of heaven? A person living in one world and yet part of a kingdom of a world that's here already and still not yet. The passage I want to look at today starts at... Uh, John chapter 18, verse 28, and we'll read through chapter 19, verse 3. We'll start it again, John 18, verse 28, and then read through chapter 19, verse 3. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation, the chief priests, have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. 
For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. You may be seated. We continue to walk through the gospel of John portrayed in stained glass windows as an eagle because of the lofty ideas he portrays about Jesus Christ. And he wrote the meaning of the book in John 20, 30 and 31. Please read it with me. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the believing you may have life in his name. This morning I want to talk about this new kingdom, three aspects of this new kingdom, and then two actions of new kingdom citizens. Three aspects of the new kingdom that come from this text, two actions of new kingdom citizens. So we get started and we, uh, we see this new, this new kingdom, first of all, it has a different location. It's not from the world. Now I want to go back and walk through some of these verses that we just read and we're talking with, we're walking with Jesus, rather, through trials that he's going to have to endure. He had a religious trial. Now he's having to endure this civil trial with this governor. He just met with the Jewish officials and the members of the Sanhedrin uh, over at the uh, residence of Caiaphas. And John doesn't cover this as, in as much detail as Matthew does. But Jesus, as we know from verse 7, was charged with blasphemy. The Jews said, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. That comes later in chapter 19. And we've got to come into this with a full picture. This tiny region we're talking about is that solid pink area there nestled against the Mediterranean. It's this region called Judea, a small province in a vast Roman Empire. This wasn't the best place to be stationed as a Roman soldier. And it was led by a man named Pontius Pilate. And with with Pontius Pilate, the Jewish leaders knew if they were going to prosecute Jesus with a capital offense, if they wanted him to be executed, they were going to have to get Pontius Pilate to buy in on it. The power to execute criminals was one of the most closely guarded functions of these Roman governors. And Pilate was trying to avoid an uprising of these Jews. Remember, it was Passover. And Israel was packed now. Jerusalem was packed. All the Jews had come to gather there. He normally didn't reside in Jerusalem, but he and his soldiers would come there this time of year just to make sure they could squash a rebellion if it happened to come up. Pilate was known by historians for being brutal. As a matter of fact, sometimes he would execute Jews while they were doing their sacrifices to mingle their blood with the blood of the sacrifice. He was aware of vulnerabilities, and he controlled Judea harshly. So the scene is set, and according to verse 28, the Jews didn't even want to enter his household. They would become unclean. 
if the Jews became unclean during this part of the Passover uh, festivities, there would be parts of the Passover that they could not participate in. So they stopped. They dropped Jesus off. And Pilate asked, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they said, well, if he's not doing evil, then we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate doesn't want any part of this. The Jews are just looking for a rubber stamp from Pilate to do what it is they wanted to do. They wanted the death penalty. Now, if they had just said, hey, he committed blasphemy, Pilate would definitely have backed off. They knew better than to say that at the beginning. They just want Pilate to say, do what it is that you want to do. They don't want another courtroom session. But then look at verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now the nature of Jesus' death was foretold. Jews did not execute by means of a cross. Jews executed by means of stoning. But it was prophesied that Jesus' bones would not be broken, that he would be lifted up like the snake back in the Old Testament among the Jews when they were in the wilderness. That didn't constitute a stoning. And both Jews and Gentiles were going to be responsible for the deed. So how is that all going to come together? We see it happening. Having heard from these Jews, Pilate now takes the case into his own hands. He asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus seeks to clarify the question in verse 34. And he wants to know, Pilate, are you asking me? This is what he wants to know. Pilate, are you asking me if I'm a political king conspiring against you? Or are you asking, am I the messianic king of the Jews? No over here. Yes over here. But Pilate makes it clear that even though Jesus is showing him this graciousness, he's sarcastic. He said, well, am I a Jew? I have no interest in this personally. But I think it's real interesting. Look at what it says starting at verse 35. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? These chief priests have handed him over to this Roman governor. Now, these chief priests, they want to keep the status quo. They know that everything, their way of life, will be totally upended if this man claims to be king of the Jews, starts some big uprising. That's the last thing they want to happen. And it's all being threatened. Their way of life, their world, their status. And they want to keep the status quo. Caesar says, what's going on? Why are you such a threat? To which Jesus says in verses 36 through 38, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Pilate said to him, so you're a king. Jesus answered, you say I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So what just happened here? Jesus jettisons this conversation into something completely foreign to Pilate. He's talking about something otherworldly, something supernatural. He's a king, but, but his kingdom is not one that's going to wage war against Caesar's kingdom. You see, the kingdom of God needs no armies. There is no power in the universe that's going to stop its coming. 
Jesus has complete confidence. My kingdom and its citizens would have fought you and the officials and would not have handed me over to you, but my kingdom is something else from somewhere else. See, the kingships of the world preserve themselves with violence and force, and if Jesus' kingship finds its origins elsewhere, it will not be defended by the world's means. And that means something for us as citizens of this kingdom. See, you and I are never going to totally feel comfortable in this world. If you have some longing in you, some pain that it always feels like is kind of hanging there to a, to a degree, even with the joy we have as a Christian, to a degree there's still this longing that will never fully be met in this world. There's a loneliness in this world that isn't totally met. We're not going to totally feel at home here. And I, I love what C.S. Lewis said about this in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, there is such a thing as water. If I find myself in a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. It's one of my favorite quotes in the book, Mere Christianity. It's not going to be until Christ comes back and he fully sets up his kingdom that we'll enjoy it. And, and until then, we as kingdom citizens are not going to feel totally at home in this world. We can't legislate a new kingdom here. We have to wait till Christ brings that. And then that, there's a second aspect of this kingdom. It brings new values. And, and what rises to the surface in this narrative is the values of the Jewish leaders. And, and, we, and we've seen their efforts to condemn Christ. And Jewish leaders will do whatever they have to. This claim to kingship, again, is going to upend what they love and and they have to maintain harmony with Rome, but harmony with Rome is going to come at a price. It will cost them their souls. Because it meant rejecting King Jesus. The Jewish people, the leaders are trying to lead the others astray. And, and those leaders in, Jew, in, in Judaism will have to answer for that. I would not want to be in their shoes. Bring us Barabbas, the murderer, if you're going to release someone. He was an enemy of the Jews and Rome. And, and for a man with a so-called interest in justice, Pilate is still going to want to release Barabbas. Poor choice. There was a historian that summarized how the Romans uh, in their culture uh, viewed the church early on. And, and Pilate was driven by the politics of the day. And he said the drive to dominate and not be forced to bow before a rival was paramount. The Jews had been infected with that same ideology. And, and so not only did the Jewish leaders demand this poor choice of a prisoner, they're chanting crucified Jesus because of his claim to be the Son of God. Then look at Pilate's, Pilate's response in 19, 8 through 10. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And of course, he has the power to crucify Jesus. But like truth, Jesus' retort explains the nature of true power. 
And he says it's from heaven above. That's where true power comes from. And that is the origin of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, look, I come from above. That's where the true power comes from. You don't understand what true power is. Pilate, you enjoy a privilege given to you by Caesar, who ranks above you. And, and think about what Christ said in his earlier encounter with Pilate back in verse uh, 37. For this purpose I was born, and this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, well, what is truth? It's a very um, of-the-age comment. Pilate turned away from the one who was the truth. He didn't wait for an answer. And the new kingdom and its citizens embody truth and truth over any sense of self-preservation. We always tell the truth, the truth no matter what would happen to us. We're not concerned about ourselves. And, and as new kingdom citizens, our king wants us to speak the truth. No matter the cost, I was listening to a conversation between two pastors I admire very much. Uh, John Piper and John MacArthur. And they were talking about how pastors at this time, more than anything else, should be preparing their churches for persecution. We're living in a, ironically, we live in a culture that increasingly has no tolerance for the truth. And when you speak the truth, you'll be labeled intolerant. But we have to tell people they are sinners and they need a Savior named Jesus Christ. And he's defined how a culture should act and behave. And we're Christians first and all else comes second. But we value truth more than power. And that brings a unique set of results. Finally, this new kingdom brings new results. The Jewish leaders wouldn't think twice about aligning themselves with Rome if it meant keeping power. And by the time we get to chapter 19, more, uh, it's more like a riot. And Pilate is desperately getting out of pronouncing judgment on Jesus. But look at what happens in verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Tiberius was on the throne and he was sick and he was violent. And he was suspicious. Pilate had, Pilate had plenty to cover up and didn't want an unfavorable report to get to the boss. He was going to side with Rome. Not some strange Jew. There was no question in his mind. And the Jews revealed their hearts in verse 15. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Listen to the chief priests. We have no king but Caesar. See, here's the irony. They are the ones committing blasphemy now. They will, they'll do anything to self-preserve their power. And something Keller says um, about our citizenship and Jesus being our king now. He says Christians are free to take or leave money, power, recognition, and status. How? He says these things... At the top of the kingdom of this world, don't have to control them the same way anymore. And when you understand what Jesus has done for you, it frees you when you realize that you are made righteous by his grace and not by your achievement. And that you are loved in Jesus Christ. It changes the way you look at power, money, and status. They don't control you anymore. 
Christians can have this joy of selflessness, self-forgetfulness even. And that's one of the pathways to joy, this kind of humility. So then as these new kingdom citizens, I want to talk about two actions that are necessary. And the first is to be resilient. Be resilient. There was a new study that came out from Barna that uh, they went out to study what they call resilient disciples. And these are 18 to 29-year-olds. They go to church regularly, trust the Bible, personally committed to Jesus with a desire to influence broader society. And they found that these kinds of resilient disciples only make up 10% of young people who grew up Christian. There were five traits among them. There were two that really stuck out to me. They practice cultural discernment and they engage in counter-cultural mission. Now, what does that mean? It means they don't get their cues on how to live from the world. They know they are strangers. They're not going to do things like everybody else around them. They're not going to use the same language. They're not going to have the same actions. They're strangers in this world. In no way should an election like one coming up this week impact the unity, the spiritual unity of God's people. Our citizenship transcends the world, so we don't freak out if our politicians aren't elected. We're resilient. And that brings our second way of living, our second action, that is to think eternally. Think eternally. One of the things that, that Pilate and Jews, they, they didn't get this. They're stuck in the here and now. Whatever will preserve my power and my way of life in the here and now. But when you compare the here and now to eternity, there's really no comparison. One of my favorite illustrations of this was a pastor one time, he took a rope. And he held the end of it, but the rope went off the stage, went clear around the auditorium, went out the door to who knows where. But the tip of that rope was painted red, just the tip. And he said, this is your life in comparison to eternity. This is your life in comparison to uh, the amount of years that you're going to be living with God in heaven. And it's almost nothing in comparison to eternity. And his point was, we spend so much time planning and worrying about such a short span. We give remarkably little thought to what really counts, and that is eternity. So putting this all together, be a resilient, eternally-minded citizen of the new kingdom. I want to close with this brief story about a man named Moses Bittak. He waited a lifetime to become a U.S. citizen. And he said that alone would have given him the greatest day of his life. But it was just a prelude because on the way home from getting that citizenship in Des Moines, Iowa, he found out that he won the lottery. And he won $2 million. And he said, it's almost like you adopted a new country and then you netted $1.8 million. He said, it doesn't happen anywhere, I guess only in America. And in the same way, new life in Christ gives us citizenship into the kingdom of God and a heavenly reward. That far exceeds anything monetarily that we could have for the moment. Please pray with me. And God, we thank you that we can come to you. We thank you, Lord, for this moment in which we are about to share in communion. This special moment that we have to consider your sacrifice for us in a physical way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.